Friday night, here we go, coming out on a cold Friday night to hear the Word of God. A couple of things before I begin. First of all, uh, I just want to say that I love the Bible, uh, I love the Word of God, and I love you. Uh, you are the people of God, and it's my honor to stand in front of you. Uh, as Nathan said, also, it's my honor to be here because I am from Pennsylvania. Um, my brother actually was a pastor in this region for many years. Uh, he was pastor of the Chippewa Alliance Church back uh, in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. And so we would come visit him here from time to time. So it is, uh, it is a pleasure to be back. Uh, but it is just a delight to be with you tonight, that you would give up your Friday night to come hear the Word of God. Uh, that does my heart very good. So I'm very glad to, very glad to see you tonight. Nathan, thank you for inviting me back to preach for your congregation. That's a, that's a high honor. Uh, Sandra, thank you for feeding us. And so it's, yeah, I would come just for her to cook for us. That's, that's how good her cooking is. So I'm pleased to be here. Uh, I suppose Nathan has been with you since about 2017. I'm sure he has shared a lot of stories about his pastoral experience. Uh, has he ever told you about the first time that he ever did a hospital visit as a young minister? That, does anyone, that, okay, so let me share that story with you. Uh, uh, I, 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 I've got all night. Um, so, Nathan went into the hospital and unfortunately one of his parishioners uh, at the time needed a blood transfusion and unfortunately at the hospital they had lost his heart and uh, they were panicking and, and Nathan got there and so the doctor thinking that Nathan would be of some comfort said if you will just stay with the gentleman and pray with him or do whatever it is you need to do we're going to go try to find his heart so that we can know, you know what kind of blood to give him and uh, a few minutes later, the doctor came back, and Nathan said, well, uh, uh, good news, bad news, what do you want first? And the doctor said, well, what's the bad news? And Nathan said, well, he, he died. He, he passed. And the doctor said, well, what's the good news? And Nathan said, well, as he was passing from this life into the next, he wasn't thinking of himself. He was only thinking about me. He was trying to encourage me. He was giving me advice up to his very dying breath, just giving me encouragement and advice. The doctor said, well, what was he saying? And Nathan said, well, he just kept repeating, be positive, be positive. That's not a true story. <laughs> um, the Lord Jesus Christ said that wisdom is justified by her children. By that, he meant that the way you can tell whether or not someone is wise is by the decisions that they make, the fruit that is produced in their lives. Uh, we often foolishly assume that someone is wise uh, because they are old. Well, you know that there is such a thing as an old fool. Or, or we think that someone is wise because of their appearance, or because of their experience, or because other people tell us that they are wise or because they themselves claim to be wise. But Jesus tells us the way that you can tell whether or not someone is wise is based upon their 
decision. Well, in the book of 1 Samuel, we have an example of, I'm sorry, the book of 1 Kings, we have an example of someone who was wise, and the reason that we know that they were wise is because of decisions that they made, and that, of course, is in Solomon. So what we're going to be looking at tonight is 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. It's a very familiar story, story of the two prostitutes and the suffocated baby. Uh, we're going to look at the wisdom that Solomon showed there. Remember that earlier in Solomon's reign, the Lord came to him and granted him one request, and the request that he made was that he would be wise to rule God's people, and the Lord actually heard that prayer, that request, and he granted that request, and the way that we know that the Lord granted that request is from this example of the two prostitutes and the suffocated baby. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, the wisdom of Solomon, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Kind Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us Bibles. We want to pause tonight and acknowledge that as the word of God is read, we are hearing absolute truth. Thank you that you have communicated in and through your Son. Uh, Thank you, dear Lord, that you have not left us in ignorance. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you want us to know the truth. So, Lord, we who own Bibles, we confess, Lord, that we have the truth. But, Father, we also confess that sometimes we find it difficult to understand the truth. So, Lord, this is where we need your Spirit to guide us. And so we pray that our minds and our hearts would be open. We pray that our hearts would be large and soft as we receive your word tonight. Uh, I pray, dear Lord, that we would learn from this example of Solomon's wisdom uh, but more than that, in it, I pray, Lord, that you would please show us Christ, even as has been sung earlier. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. E- enable me to communicate tonight with these people accurately and, and compassionately. Uh, help me, Lord. I need you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to work our way through this, um, verse by verse, and then after I'm finished explaining the text, Let me give you five points of application. So let's just work our way through the text. It says, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Let's just stop right there. We see the Christ-likeness of Solomon here in two ways. First of all, in his humility. Secondly, in his mercy. First of all, in his humility. Uh, These people would have been the least in society. They were prostitutes. Uh, we will find later that Solomon will have the Queen of Sheba who will travel to get wisdom from him, but he's not only speaking to those that are high up, but he is willing to deal with what the Bible would call the least of these. So he is willing to hear the case of two prostitutes. That shows his, that shows his, his humility, and it also shows his mercy because under the law of Moses, uh, these two women should have been stoned to death, and the living baby should have been given up for adoption. But this king is merciful, and he is humble. And so they are coming before him in what would be the ancient Near East equivalent of a court case. Verse 17. The one woman said, uh, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, 
and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. Uh, we were there alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. You notice from this reading that on three separate occasions, the case is being made that there are no eyewitnesses. There are no, there's no camera. There's no DNA. We live together. No one is with us. It is only we two that live there. Why say it over and over and over again? Because it is boiling down to a she said, she said situation. It is one word against another. No physical evidence. Somebody who is actually very wise is going to have to come in to solve this riddle. So, two ladies out of work temporarily for obvious reasons, sharing a house. Both women slept through the asphyxiation. Um, look now in verse 20. Um, I'm sorry, verse 19. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she rose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he, it was not, he was not, was not the child that I had born. So, keep in mind that not only are the two of them in this house with no one there, but there are no lights. There are no street lights. There is no lamp. It is completely dark. Uh, the babies are very, very similar in their appearance. They are the same age, only three days apart. They are the same gender. Babies sometimes can appear uh, as though there are other babies. They look, a lot of them all look the same when they are born. When our first son was born, uh, his name is Parker, he was born in Columbia, South Carolina. I said to one of the nurses that worked at the hospital, do you ever mix the babies up? And she said it only happened in one on one occasion. She was an elderly nurse at the time, and that was 31 years ago. She said it only happened one time. We got the babies mixed up and sent them home to the wrong parents. I said, how did you rectify the situation? She said, well, we drove up to the house. We had the correct baby in the car. We went to the house. We knocked on the door, and we told the parents. They were first-time parents, so they didn't know any better. We said, it's customary that we check the baby to make sure that everything is okay. And so they gave us the baby, we took the baby to the car, sat there for a few minutes, swapped clothes with the babies, and carried the right baby back to the right mother. No harm, no foul. Nobody ever knew the difference. I said, did you ever tell the parents this? Like, did, did they, did, was this ever known in the community? She said there was no need to tell anybody. The right baby ended up the right home, and we never, we never told anybody far as those parents knew, they always had the right baby. Well, in this particular case, this woman wakes up in the middle of the night. There is a dead baby laying beside her. Obviously, she would think that that is her baby. Until she goes over by the window and looks at the baby in the light and says, This is not my baby. A swap was taken in the middle of the night. 
the guilty mother disputes this in verse 22, and they get in, in an argument in front of the king. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. I'm trying to paint a picture of this in my mind. I don't think that this was a proper court setting where the one woman came forward with her lawyer when they were called upon and said, pardon me, Your Honor, I have something to bring to the court. That is not her baby. That is my baby. And then she would be able to make her case. And then, with perfect peace and quiet, the other one would say, may I please reply? And they were speaking one after another. I think that they were talking on top of one another. I don't think that there was any decorum or protocol at all. I think this was an all-out cat fight in front of the king saying, that's my baby. No, that's my baby. I think that it had gotten out of hand. I think that chaos is breaking out in the courtroom. The guilty mother and the innocent mother, both of them arguing, arguing, arguing. It was probably not orderly. And at this point, in the midst of this confusion and perhaps even chaos, Solomon steps in in verse 23, and he says, Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, your son is dead, and my son is the living one. Don't skip over this verse. I think it's really important to note what Solomon as a wise king does. Before he renders any kind of a verdict whatsoever, he does this. He says, let me make sure that I understand all of the facts first. Is this what is being said? You are saying that she stole your baby. You are saying that was her baby to begin with, and your baby is the living one. Is that correct? Are the ground rules laid out? Very good. Now we can proceed. I think sometimes we get into trouble when we try to pass judgment before we know at least what the argument is. So, Solomon lays out the ground rules, and then he does something which is brilliant, which demonstrates that the wisdom of God is with him. Verse 24. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, give half to the one and half to the other. Now, try to paint the picture in your mind's eye. If we were in a 21st century courtroom and the judge were to say, Bring me a sword, they would have to have recess and they'd have to go find the sword because one would not be handy. But if you were in the ancient Near East and you were a king and you were ruling and you asked for a sword, a sword could be produced very quickly. The reason that a sword could be produced very quickly is that one needed to be beside the king at all times for purposes of protection. Furthermore, it wouldn't just be an ordinary, blunt, dull, run-of-the-mill sword. I'm sure that it would be a big and a sharp sword that would be capable of cutting a baby in half. It would be there instantly. The reason that we need to remember that the sword would be there right away is because if you are going to speak, 
you are going to have to speak quickly. Because if the bailiff acts upon the request to cut the baby in half, it's too late at that point. Now, if you ask me, do I think that Solomon actually would have allowed that baby to be cut in half? I would say absolutely not. I know that. You know that. But these mothers cannot afford to gamble with that. Because even if they thought he was bluffing, but he really wasn't bluffing, or even if he was bluffing, and the guy would just do what he said, the baby is dead. So if you are going to speak up, you have a split second to do so. You cannot approach the bench and say, excuse me, Your Honor, may I ask for a recess? I would like to consult with my client. If you're going to say something, you've got to say something very quickly. I heard of a, a situation, um, heard of it just yesterday, uh, in my hometown of Dubois. Apparently, there was a man um, that was um, in a an adulterous relationship with another man's wife, and uh, the husband of this woman went to the man and pointed a gun at him, and the man uh, who was cheating uh, mockingly said to the man with the gun, uh, what are you going to do? Kill me? And the guy pulled the trigger right there, shot him in the head, and killed him dead at Frank's Pizza in Dubois, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, you don't want to be bluffing uh, or, 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 or rolling the dice when someone has a sword or a gun. If someone walks up to me and they say, I have a gun and it's loaded, it may or may not be loaded, but I'm going to believe them. I'm going to give up my wallet rather than to test them. And that's what this woman has to do. If she is going to speak on behalf of her baby, she has to speak immediately. She doesn't have time to think it over. Verse 26. Verse 26. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Hang on to that, hang on to that, because her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. So you have these two mothers, the real mother and the fake mother. The real mother doesn't care whether or not she actually gets the baby. She doesn't have to win the case. She just needs to make sure that the baby stays alive because her concern is primarily for the baby. The other woman doesn't care about winning. She just can't let the other woman win. She is insanely jealous that the other woman has a living baby, and so she wants both of them to have a dead baby. Let me use the sports illustration to uh, accentuate my point. Uh, I am a New York Mets fan. Um, I know that we have a dead team. We have always had a dead team. We will always have a dead team. Uh, we are the worst organization in all of professional sports. And so for me to take my energy and, and to spend it cheering wholeheartedly for the Mets, that's a waste of time because they are just never going to be any good. There's another team that lived in our town, and they are the Yankees. And in Christian love, I hate the Yankees. 
Like, I, I, I really hate them. I do not hate them as individuals wishing ill upon them. But as an organization, I want them to lose all the time. And they have won 27 world championships. And they rub it in our noses all the time. And so, as I am watching baseball toward the end of the year, I'm not so much cheering that the Mets will win, because them, their wins are meaningless. They don't really ever have a chance. But I spend my energy cheering against the Yankees. I just want them to lose because of sinful pride and jealousy. Like, I just don't like the Yankees. And I have tried to disciple my family to do the same thing. So, a few years ago, I'm walking down the street, and uh, streets are narrow. I'm first, my wife's walking right behind me, and our four-year-old grandson is trailing behind. And there is a very distinguished gentleman walking toward us. Uh, he's wearing a New York Yankee hat. Uh, my wife and I did what all good New Yorkers will do. We walked past him without even acknowledging his existence. And as I pass him, and then my wife passes him, I can hear my four-year-old grandson saying, Boo, Yankees! Boo, Yankees! I thought, I've never been more proud of one of my offspring in all my life that, that they would do that. That's what's happening here with this, with this woman. She does not want the other woman to have a living child. She is motivated by jealousy. She wants to see the other woman lose. So, the real mother says, give the baby up. She can have the baby. I don't have to win as long as the baby wins. The fake mother says, cut the baby in half. doesn't make any difference to me. Here's where the king steps in and has his great demonstration of wisdom. Verse 27. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. Look at this next phrase. She is his mother. It's not, I'm pretty sure I know who the real mother is. Or, I think I've got this one figured out. Or, the likelihood of this woman being the mother is very great. No, definitively, a wise king who has been given wisdom from God is able definitively, with assurance, to say, she is the mother. I know with 100% certainty. Verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king. Hang on to that phrase. They stood in awe of the king. Why? Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. He's no longer David's son. He's no longer just a young man with promise. He is our king. And he is a wise king. And the reason that we know that he is a wise king is because God is with him. And by that, we now are in awe of him because it is so clear that God is with him. So that's the story. I don't think that I have taught you anything tonight that you don't know already. 
I, I think you are familiar with this story. I think you know it very well. I would like to give you five gospel applications from this, which perhaps could be some of some help to your soul. And here's the first of our gospel applications. Number one, the nature of sin is such that we will always shift the blame to others. The nature of shit sin is that we will always shift the blame to others. Let me go back to my my children again. My son Parker was not even two years old. And then his brother Charlie comes along. We bring Charlie home from the hospital. A little bald-headed baby in a carrier. Can't even roll over. Bring him into the house. And I set Charlie down, and I left the room. I came back a few minutes later, and about this high off the ground, there were crayon marks on the wall. I walked in, and I said to Parker, who is not even two years old, What happened? Sees the look on my face. Hears the tone of my voice. Sees the scribbling on the wall. Looks at me. And with all sincerity says, Charlie did it. Now, where did Parker learn to lie when he wasn't even two years old? From his mother. No, the reason he learned to lie is because that's who we are by nature. The hardest people above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The wicked are estranged from the womb. They come forth as soon as they are born speaking lies. We, by nature, can't handle the truth. And the last person that we are willing to blame for any faults is ourselves. It is the nature of sin to shift the blame to others. And so the woman mothers her baby in the middle of the night. And then she tampers with the evidence in order to make it appear as though someone else is guilty. This is what sinful people by nature do. They refuse to take responsibility. She shifts the blame to another woman. And this has been happening since the dawn of time. Adam, got a rule for you. You can eat from any tree that you want to. Tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat. When the day you eat the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. Adam is responsible. Eve sins, then Adam sins, God mercifully comes looking for them. Genesis 3.11 Adam, I have a question for you. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response, Genesis 3.12 The woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It is not my fault, the woman that you gave me, and ultimately God, it's your fault because you're the one that gave her to me. Not my fault. Not my fault. Blame shifting. The next verse, God addresses Eve. He asks the question, what have you done? Her response, the serpent. It's not my fault. 
the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. You know how rare it is to hear people, when confronted about sin, to look you in the eye and to say, I'm wrong. Period. It's my fault. Period. I'm guilty. Period. No, it, it's always, ah, okay, I see that maybe I might have, but you know what? And there's an excuse. And there's another person that's responsible. And there are circumstances. We, when we go before God, need to be silent and to simply say, I'm wrong. I'm guilty. Now think about how much you hate it. When you know that someone has done something wrong, you confront them on what they have done wrong, and then they give you a half-hearted admittal of guilt, or, or they look for someone else to blame for their sin, or, or they flat-out blame circumstances, or they blame people who are innocent. They lay the dead baby at the side of the innocent woman. Now, if you think how much you hate it when people will not own up to responsibilities when they have wronged you, how much more would a holy God who is omniscient hate it when people equivocate and make excuses and shift the blame? In fact, I would say a sure sign of an unbeliever is a person who cannot take responsibility and say, I am wrong. When Isaiah sees the holiness of Christ, he stops blaming others and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. When Peter saw the holiness of Christ after a great catch of fish, he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Today we were over in western Pennsylvania. Uh, I guess we're still in western Pennsylvania. Uh, near Punxsutawney. I was with a cousin of mine today. He's 84 years old. Uh, I don't know him well at all. Uh, but we were talking about our aunt. Uh, my aunt. Um, <clears throat> my father told me that when he first met her, he didn't like to admit to other people that he knew her uh, because she was such a drunk. Um, I've always heard the story of her testimony, how she got drunk and fell down a flight of stairs, and when she fell down that flight of stairs, she broke her neck and was in a hospital room in Dubois, Pennsylvania. And in 1959, in that hospital bed, she cried out to Christ and said, Please save me. And she said she felt as though a bucket of warm water had been poured over her head and that she had been cleansed and she was healed from this broken back that she had. And she got up and she served the Lord. She talked about something that happened in the early days of her salvation. 
where she went to church for the first time at the Christian Missionary Alliance Church on Jarrett Street in Dubois, Pennsylvania. And when she walked in and the pastor said, does anybody have a word of testimony for the Lord? She sat there. She didn't stand up. She didn't say anything. She said she walked home that night, just down the block to her house. She went in the house and she started to weep and cry. She said, Jesus, you ever let me get back to that church, and if I ever have another opportunity again, I will never deny you again, but I will always stand and speak up for you. And the reason I tell that story is because as a child growing up in that church, I wasn't born until 61, she was saved in 59. My entire life, any time, and it was frequent, that the pastor would say, does anybody have a word of testimony of love for the Lord? It's like she had springs under her, and she would spring up and talk about her love for Jesus Christ, often with tears in her eyes. As part of her testimony, what she would say was, when I was laying in that hospital bed, God gave me a picture of myself. And when God shows you yourself, it is an ugly sight. And you cannot bear the sight of yourself. Just today, my cousin told me that he remembers walking down the streets of Dubois in 1955, four years before my aunt was saved. He said, I would walk down the street and I could hear your aunt's voice inside the bar room, putting it up, drunk as could be, her voice so loud it was carrying out onto the street. When this woman got saved, she never wanted to go back. And she saw the ugliness of her own sin. And she would always say, when you see a picture of yourself, it is an ugly sight. She never made excuses. She always talked about the fact that she hated her past sinful life and she was grateful to Jesus Christ for rescuing her. But yet so often, there are so many that have so many excuses as to why they are as sinful as they are. The fact of the matter is, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we cannot shift blame to other people. We have to stand, as Isaiah did, bowing before the Lord, saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. We cannot take our dead baby and put it beside another person and shift the blame to them. We are wrong, we are guilty, we must take responsibility. The gospel will not save anybody who is not lost. And you cannot be saved until you are lost. One of the kindest graces that God gives to his people when he is saving them is that he does for them what he did for my aunt, and that is that he gives us a picture of ourselves. And when he does, it is then that the mercy of Christ seems so sweet. The people who are well don't need a doctor. People who aren't sinners don't need a savior. People who are blame shifters do not need a Christ or a Messiah. The nature of true gospel ministry is that we take the responsibility and we say, I am wrong, I am guilty, I have no excuse. Point number two, 
point number two. <clears throat> I draw your attention to the gospel in this story because Solomon is a type of Christ. Now, how do we know that Solomon is a type of Christ? Well, because Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. The Bible, the Bible in its entirety, is about Christ. If you see Christ, then you see the meaning of the text. And as we look at this story, we see Christ clearly, who has become for us wisdom from God. He is, or Solomon is, a type of Christ. How do we see this? Well, well, we see this, first of all, in the fact that at the end of the chapter, the people were in awe of Solomon, and they saw that God was with him. Remember earlier, I said that Solomon was merciful, and he was humble. That is Jesus Christ. And God is with him. Remember what Nicodemus says. Rabbi, we know that nobody can do the works that you do unless God is with him. God was with Christ. And the people were in awe of the king. And we, as the people of Jesus Christ, are in awe of our great wise king. Difference is, Solomon exercised wisdom over Israel for a limited period of time. And then, through temptation of foreign women, the one who was once wise became foolish. But Jesus, our great king, was always wise and forever will be wise. He is a greater Solomon. A greater Solomon. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42. Something greater than Solomon is here. So our second point of application is this. Are you in awe of our great king? Do you worship Jesus Christ? Third thing that we'd like to point out is the doctrine of love. Or, as the theologians call it, loveology. Please remember this, and I want to make it very simple for you tonight. The one who loves you is the one who is willing to sacrifice the most for you. The one who loves you is the one who will speak up for you. You see, the true mother was willing to sacrifice her rights and to give up her relationship with her son so that the baby could live. And the baby was not even aware of her sacrifice. And until we were saved, we were not even aware of the sacrifice of Christ. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in, in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The baby is completely oblivious. But the baby has someone that loves him and who will speak up for him. The one who has demonstrated the love by sacrificing is the one that loves you the most. And the more they sacrifice, the more they love you. Why do we love our mothers and fathers? 
because they have sacrificed so much for me. Oh, the greater love knows no man than this, but that a man would lay down his life for his friend. This is the doctrine of love. I don't have to have the baby. You take the baby. I, 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 I love my son, but, but for my son to live, if it means that I will not have my son, you take, you take him. Poor, miserable, rebellious, wretches who want nothing to do with God or His law his kingdom Christ lays down his life for them and he goes to the cross and he speaks up and he sacrifices so that we can live I, I think one of the reasons why people may have cold hearts toward God they might be really good at theology and I know the Bible really well but, but knowledge puffs up that which will keep your heart soft and large is remembering the sacrifice of Christ. We constantly go astray. And he constantly keeps bringing us back. Before I, uh, before I was a pastor, I was a youth minister. Ah, yeah, I, I'd rather have a root canal than to go back into youth ministry. I mean, it is, it is hard work. It is really hard work. Here's in part why it is so hard. Teenagers will do things that are bad and wrong, and they are really bad criminals, and they get caught, and and so then your responsibility as a youth pastor is to take this information to their parents. Now, you can have fingerprints, DNA, signed confession, photograph, video evidence of what they did wrong. You take that evidence to a parent. The kid is guilty. He's just flat guilty. Do you know what the parent will do unless they are excessively mature? They will defend that child. You know why? The doctrine of love. I was a guilty sinner. Like hell-deserving guilty. Jesus knew everything that I had done wrong. Yet he laid down his life for me. The doctrine of love. Defended me with his own blood. It is the doctrine of love. See, we are guilty. We have one who will speak up for us. So let me say this. If he'll speak up for us, why will we not speak up for him? Next. And what I would like to move to now as I close, as I give these gospel illustrations or gospel applications, 
Everything I've said up to this point is, 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 is a matter of continuity. That there is a match between Christ and Solomon. That the, the, the love of the mother and the love of Christ. Let me say a word now about discontinuity. Two illustrations of discontinuity. And it has to do with the mother. Uh, not the two prostitutes, but the one prostitute was the real mother and married the mother of Christ. See the discontinuity between these two women. Now, they are similar in that both of them carried male children in their wombs for nine months. Both of them delivered healthy babies. Both of them knew that their sons were in danger. Stick with me. But there is a big difference. Try to envision what that courtroom scene was like. The prostitute carried the baby before Solomon. She is not the real mother. She has stolen the baby in the middle of the night. The real mother is going into the courtroom and she is crying. Crying because she does not have possession of her baby. And then furthermore, she is saddened and probably weeping because there is a word that the baby potentially might be cut in two. And just like that, she speaks a word, and just like that, Solomon says, she is the mother, and just like that, the baby is handed to her, and just like that, she walked out of that courtroom, and she is holding her child, and all is well that ends well. The sword that was in the hand of the bailiff went back into the sheep, and when it went back in, it was sharp, and it was shiny, and it was clean. There was not one drop of blood on that sword. That woman walked out rejoicing. Mary stood at the foot of the cross for six hours. And she watched her beloved son tormented and die. Isaiah tells us that his visage was marred more than any man. Meaning that when they got done pulverizing Jesus, he didn't even look like a human being. I am a worm and not a man. She looks at his hand. Mother. Isn't it the most precious thing in the world when a baby is so tiny? One of the first things, in fact, I think the first thing that the baby can do is reach up and put their hand around your finger. And isn't it sweet? And now those hands are nailed to a cross. Mothers, is there anything more precious than the brow of a little baby? Don't you love to just kiss the brow of your newborn baby? But now there is a crown of thorns on that brow. And if Jesus had been cut into with a sword, that would have been merciful because the, 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 the suffering would have ended. But for six hours he is on the cross, naked, humiliated, 
chained, struggling to breathe. But it's not just the physical agony that he's going through on the cross. But the sins of God's people are upon him on the cross. And as those sins are upon him, he bore in his body our sins upon the tree. Holy God, looking out of heaven, rolls up his sleeve and he hammers his son to death for six hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for sin. And Mary is looking at all of it. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. Judas has hung himself at this point. Ten of the disciples are in hiding. Only John is there. Woman, behold your son. But Mary didn't miss a blow. She's looking at all of it. Prostitute walked out of the courtroom. She's holding that chubby baby. She's going home with a live child. Mary stands there. They thrust the sword into her Lord and out came water and blood. He was dead. Not only did he die, but he died for her sins. Luke 2.35 Jesus is only eight days old and Mary goes to the temple and she finds a man by the name of Simeon and Simeon says to Mary, Luke 2.35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Boy, that was fulfilled at Mount Calvary, wasn't it? Discontinuity. See, the two stories don't match. One has a very happy ending. The other one, the mother watches as her son was acting. But I can't end on that. There is another form of discontinuity. That is, the baby was spared. Jesus was slaughtered. You see, the baby is like Isaac. And we always look at Isaac as a, as a sort of a Right? And, and I guess in a certain sense he is. But follow the story of Isaac all the way to the end. Abraham is willing to bring down the knife on his son, his only son, on Mount Moriah. But he is stopped by the angel and there is a ram in the thicket. But think about this. Before the ram in the thicket is cut and brought over to the altar, something has to have happened. What had to happen? Abraham had to go to the altar and either cut his son loose or untie his son, and his son had to get up and walk away free. Isaac walked away free. The ram in the thicket is slaughtered. Jesus doesn't walk away free. He dies.
Let's follow that little boy if we can. What I'm about to tell you is not in the Bible. Not even in the Apocrypha. It's only in my imagination. So it, it is very likely that what I am about to tell you is not true. You do not have to believe it. It's not in the book. I am speculating. But here's my reasoning. If 3,000 years later, we today know the story of the little boy that went free because his mother stood up for him and the wisdom of Solomon, arguing from the greater to the lesser, does it not then stand to reason that as that little boy was growing up in Jerusalem, would he himself have not known while he was growing up that his life was fair? Would his own mother not have told him that story? I think there is a likelihood that she would have. If this story was known to the Queen of Sheba, would it not have been known in the streets of Jerusalem and to this little boy? And can you imagine if you are this little boy and people are talking about their great king and they are saying, you know, one time there were two women that went before the king and both of them were claiming to be the mother and Solomon figured out who the mother was by asking for a sword and the one woman who was the real mother stood up and spoke up for her son and that's how Solomon figured it out. Can you imagine being that little boy and listening to that and remaining silent? No. That's my mother. That's my mother who stood up for me. That's my mother who was willing to sacrifice for me. Can you imagine being bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ? And then a discussion comes up at work or at school or with your friends about Jesus. People start to say things about Jesus that are not true. People start to take his name in vain. People start to blaspheme. Or, or people are indifferent toward him. And yet, you are one who is like Isaac who was on that altar. You are one who was like that baby that was about to get cut in half. You were one, truthfully, not using any metaphor here at all, you truthfully were going to go to hell forever with no means of escape. And he stepped in. Didn't get his Horns caught in the thicket, but he stepped in and he got on the altar on your place and he took the wrath of God for us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He stood up for you. He sacrificed for you. How dare we remain silent when the Son of God has spoken up for us on Mount Calvary. Oh, there is great discontinuity between Christ and that little baby. Because the baby went free. But Jesus loved us and died in our
So, that's our Bible story for tonight. Thank you, first of all, for coming out on a Friday night to hear the Word of God. Thank you for listening so attentively. I encourage you so much. Love Jesus Christ. Speak up for Him. For He's stood up for you. He spoke up for you with His blood on the cross. Father in Heaven, thank you for these dear people, their willingness to listen, to learn. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, may we be bold witnesses for the one who sacrificed for us. Christ's name we pray. Amen.